I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, a rather lengthy conversation with the controversial human rights and international law expert, Professor Alfred DeSayas, the first United Nations independent expert on the promotion of a democratic and equitable international order from 2012 to 2018, who joined me from Geneva, Switzerland, to discuss his recently published book, Building a Just World Order, and its forthcoming follow-up, The Human Rights Industry. Professor Tiseus had a lot to say, and he pulls no punches as we discuss a broad array of topics, including corporate media and fake news, the military-industrial complex, the Russia-Ukraine situation, NATO, and much, much more. Before we get to the conversation, which lasted around an hour and 45 minutes, a word from one of our sponsors, namely the transmedia storyteller Joseph Matheny, known for helping pioneer alternate reality games, Matheny has a new creative project, Zen, The Zen of the Other, an audio drama, available now on your favorite podcasting apps. Words make the walls that trick us into complying with stasis. Zen. The Zen of the Other is a work that follows one man as he attempts to find his way through the jumble of modernity that envelops us all and threatens to strangle us in its tentacles longer than night. Call me Ezra. Names are not important. Cast into a world where the liminal overlaps the world of the paranormal philosophical speculation. Shadows, the void are all painted over. Magic of the deep dark night. Ezra Buckley, struggling to keep his head above water long enough to pluck a jewel of wisdom from the crown of a four spirit. The very act of writing down the story in static form, carved into clay and hardened, was in itself an act of black magic. In a world devoid of rites of passage, Ezra finds himself on his own as he is confronted with the very real prospect of having a life-changing liminal experience in the woods of Big Sur, if he can survive it. Back to zero, which for me, those days seemed like where the forces of nature wanted me to reside. Is it even real? Is it the legendary watchers of Big Sur phenomena or something else? 
Zen is a work that confronts the questions of identity, modernity, life, the other, and the place for rites of passage in the modern world. Where mystery reigns supreme. Zen. The Zen of the Other. The audio play. Available now on digital.panicmachine.com. Spotify, Deezer, Apple Music, and your favorite streaming service. Welcome to Parallax Views. Alfred Deseas, uh, formerly of the United Nations, independent expert on the promotion of a democratic and equitable international order and author of the book, Building a Just World Order, available now from Clarity Press and also the upcoming book, uh, The Human Rights Industry. How are you doing today? Very well, and thanks for having me in the program. I am very keen on uh, alternative media and opportunities uh, to bring to the public information that is withheld by the New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, etc. Now, you would think that, uh, bearing in mind that I'm a professor of international law, that I have published 10 books, that I have published probably 300 scholarly articles in uh, American Journal of International Law and the Harvard International Law Journal and the Historical Journal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You would think uh, that uh, the corporate media would reach out to me and ask for my opinion, say on Ukraine, or my opinion on Guantanamo. Uh, that's not the case, never, never. Uh, because they fear that what I might say does not support uh, the media narrative, whatever they're pushing. And uh, so uh, a whole, shall we say, uh, dimension is being kept away uh, from the listener. And you probably don't know, everybody talks about freedom of expression. And I, in one of my reports, I might've been my report 2013, I said, uh, Article 19 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights is not just freedom of expression. Article 19 says you have the right to uh, seek and impart information on all issues. What does that mean? You have a right of access to information. Your government has an obligation to give you that information. And of course, many people use the Freedom of Information Act in order to get information that the government should actually give you anyway. And why do we have whistleblowers? Because the government operates on the basis of secrecy. And uh, secrecy is totally undemocratic, anti-democratic. The government owes you and it owes me the information that I need in order to make choices. Government has to consult you and has to consult me on our priorities, on our needs, on our desires. Government doesn't care. We have an oligarchy and an oligarchy just simply has the trappings of democracy as if democracy was limited to the possibility every two years to vote for a congressman or congresswoman 
or vote for a senator or vote uh, for uh, the new uh, uh, person or rather <laughs> the figure, figurehead who will be sitting uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, that is not democracy. Democracy is a correlation uh, of the will of the people, the needs of the people, and the legislation, the practice that impacts them. And we have a complete disconnect in the United States. And I consider myself disenfranchised because when it comes to elect Democrats or Republicans, usually I'm against both. I mean, neither one, neither one gives me an adequate choice. And nobody, they don't even care what I think. They are responsible to the lobbies, to the military industrial complex, etc. But we were talking about freedom of expression. Expression is not just the right to echo whatever nonsense you heard last night in CNN. The right to freedom of expression is a right to dissent. That's what it is. Obviously, you don't need any protection if you are an echo chamber. You don't need any protection if you're just going to repeat whatever the government wants you to know. Freedom of expression means you have a right to obtain the information and to disseminate it. But then you have a compliant and complicit corporate media that simply gives you the propaganda of the government and the propaganda of the military industrial complex, of the Pentagon, of, of the uh, big pharma, uh, basically the propaganda of the corporations. And that is the information uh, that you get. And uh, when you have someone like uh, uh, Richard Falk, one of my big, heroes. Big friend of the uh, show, yeah. I mean, uh, this is a fantastic book. His memoirs. Public uh, and election, yeah. And I was very happy to have been able to review them for the uh, Netherlands International uh, Law Review. Uh, but he doesn't get the visibility that someone of his caliber should be getting. And when I say uh, Richard Falk, uh, I also say William Shabas, professor in Middlesex in the United Kingdom. Uh, I also say uh, Jeffrey Sachs. Uh, uh, you, I have many, many books of uh, Jeff Sachs. One of them that I like very much is The End of Poverty. I can only uh, strongly advise people to uh, run and get these books. Another uh, of my heroes uh, is uh, Professor John Mearsheimer. Uh, here's a book by him, The Great Delusion, Liberal Dreams and International Realities. Uh, another person whom I very much uh, respect, and I had the opportunity of uh, spending a week with him at a conference and at the Carter Center is, of course, Jimmy Carter. And I have, I don't know how many of his books. This one is uh, We Can Have Peace uh, in the Holy Land. He also has the famous book, um, uh, Palestine Peace, Not Apartheid. 
that the man is amazing that a U.S. president would write a book like that, would have the courage to write a book like that. But what happened to the book? Uh, very little discussion on the book and of course punishment because uh, many of the donors of the Carter Center immediately cut uh, their donations. So you realize uh, the kind of world uh, we are living in that uh, needs uh, really a lot uh, of reform. It's not easy. Like I said, uh, in the human rights uh, field, I mean, I have worked as professor of human rights law. I have worked as a researcher at the Max Planck Institute in Heidelberg, that is the creme de la creme, more or less the academy uh, for international law in Germany. And uh, I worked for uh, 25 years for the United Nations as a senior uh, lawyer. I was the secretary of the Human Rights Committee. I was the chief of the petitions department. That's the equivalent of being registrar. So all petitions for the Human Rights Committee, Committee Against Torture, Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination passed through my desk. And um, I remember when I took early retirement, I estimated that the office owed me something like 10,000 hours of overtime because I was extremely, extremely, shall we say, devoted uh, to the cause. And I'm still very much devoted uh, to the cause. And although, or rather because of that, I am critical because I do not like to see human rights hijacked. I do not want to see uh, the human rights uh, program weaponized for geopolitical purposes. I do not want to see human rights used to destroy other human rights. And that I have seen more and more over the past, especially over the past 20 years. It is shocking how the, shall we say, Ministry of Truth, if you have read uh, George Orwell. Orwell's 1984, yes. How well that functions and how we little Winstons are being brown beaten, beaten by uh, the O'Briens uh, of Big Brother and how in the end, actually, uh, humanity, the, the whole humanity of Winston and of his girlfriend, uh, Julia, destroyed by the system. And I don't want to see that happen to the United States or to the United Kingdom or to Canada or to France and Germany and Italy, etc. But we are going in that direction. It is a slippery slope to dystopia. And uh, when you read the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal, you think everything is fine and dandy. And uh, by definition, the New York Times is the quality press. And, you know, you would think that uh, the New York Times uh, would invite uh, President Carter to express himself on any number of issues. But since they anticipate that they're not going to like what Carter is going to say, they don't invite him. Uh, they could invite uh, John Mearsheimer 
They could invite Jeff Sachs. They could invite Richard Falk. But uh, since they're not playing the game, they're not towing the line, uh, their views, okay, fine. They might be mentioned somewhere in the pages of the New York Times, uh, but they don't get uh, the vis visibility that they deserve. And there are so many issues uh, of really grotesque violations of human rights by us. I'm an American citizen and all I can say is not in my name. I mean, the crimes that uh, George W. Bush and Tony Blair committed in uh, Iraq and in Afghanistan, etc. cetera, uh, these crimes have been committed in total impunity. Nobody has been punished for that. We just devastated a country and just flagrant aggression. Not, not only has no one been punished, but now Tony Blair is getting a knighthood. It's wild. He did already. I mean, it, it, it makes you puke, really. The, the, the level of bad faith, the level of hypocrisy, the destruction of values. I mean, if I were a knight of the United Kingdom, I would give it back. I would say, if I have to share this honor with someone as dishonorable as Tony Blair, I don't want it. And actually the same thing happens uh, with uh, the Nobel Peace Prize. At the beginning, when the Nobel Peace Prize was launched, according to the uh, last will and testament of Alfred Nobel, uh, it was supposed to be given to individuals, not politicians, individuals who actually advanced the idea of world peace, the idea uh, of multilateralism, the idea uh, of negotiation and mediation, etc. You have great people like uh, Desmond Tutu and uh, Nelson Mandela and Rigoberta Menchu who have gotten the award. At the beginning, of course, it was the, the great Henri Dunant who had founded the International Committee of the Red Cross and Bertha from, from Suttner, uh, a great anti-war activist before the First World War, etc. But look who's been getting it lately. Two insignificant journalists who have only done Russophobia and xenophobia uh, this last year in 2021. Look who else has gotten it. Uh, the president of uh, Ethiopia, who is in the process of uh, uh, destroying Tigray and uh, Eritrea. It, it is, uh, how can someone like that get the Nobel Peace Prize? And why did Barack Obama, our saint, get? Uh, the Nobel Peace Prize before he had done anything at all. And you realize that no other US president has killed as many people as uh, Barack Obama with his drones. I mean, he's the king of drones and he has a fantastic press to this day. And there's so little criticism of uh, Barack Obama or for that matter, so little criticism 
uh, of uh, Bill Clinton, who was a serious warmonger. And uh, the only criticism, uh, actually kind of amusing criticism of Bill Clinton is uh, his uh, womanizing and, you know, Miss Levinsky and all the other adventures that he had uh, during, uh, before, during and after his presidency. I mean, I, I'm amazed how uh, the press persuades us uh, that some of these skunks are actually good people. Uh, some of these uh, people like Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, George W. Bush are presented in a very favorable light by the corporate media. There's very little uh, criticism of uh, these individuals. There is, of course, massive criticism of uh, Donald Trump. Now, uh, Donald Trump, I think, was incompetent, was an amateur, was um, certainly unqualified to be president of the United States of America. But one thing he said that was correct, the New York Times is fake news. CNN is fake news. He at least made an effort to alert the American public that they're being led by the nose, that they're being indoctrinated, and that they're not getting the facts. I mean, that is a plus. I think that on that one point, uh, Donald Trump uh, was correct. On the other hand, he did so much damage to the country, to the credibility of the United States, uh, to the, shall we say, image of the United States as a, an honest broker, the image for the United States as a country that is reliable. I mean, you cannot simply become U.S. president and start uh, seriatim, uh, violating one treaty after another or withdrawing from one treaty after another. Uh, I mean, you have to have continuity in international law. You need stability uh, for the world order. And uh, this man came in as everybody <laughs> says like an uh, elephant in a uh, porcelain shop. And uh, I'm very glad that he was not um, reelected. But I would have much preferred someone like uh, Bernie Sanders or even someone like uh, Tulsi Gabbard. I mean, Tulsi Gabbard uh, said what had to be said, but precisely because of that, uh, she was completely marginalized by the Democratic National Committee, and she was completely ignored uh, by uh, the uh, corporate media. I mean, so the uh, average American uh, very seldom uh, got to see any of the arguments of uh, Tulsi Gabbard. So uh, the democratic deficiencies of the United States are huge. And uh, for that very reason, 
I wrote uh, several articles uh, in uh, the press in Switzerland, in Germany, in uh, the United States concerning uh, the so-called uh, uh, democratic uh, summit that uh, President Biden uh, convoked on the 9th and 10th uh, of December of last year. I mean, that's such a farce. And not only that it was enormously divisive because uh, how can you possibly, shall we say, uh, invite uh, to this uh, farce, to this charade uh, on uh, democracy, um, uh, countries like Colombia that have a, a, a horrible record uh, of human rights and of killing uh, social uh, leaders and of killing uh, uh, indigenous, etc. Uh, how can you explain uh, uh, not, you know, if it's, you want to have uh, a, uh, a genuine democratic uh, summit, then you have to do as was done by the General Assembly in the year 2005, when uh, there was a uh, uh, democratic uh, summit and they issued uh, a resolution on that issue, which was actually quite uh, enlightening with regard uh, to the models of democracy. That is the American model of just periodic elections is it's not the model for the world. It's not one size fit all. And uh, what uh, was important, as I said, uh, was uh, that a responsible government uh, listens to the population, which does not happen in the United States, which does not happen in France, which does not happen in Germany either. I mean, I am an American citizen, but I'm also a Swiss citizen. And I vote in every single referendum. I vote uh, in every single uh, legislative initiative. I vote in every single election. And I feel that here in Switzerland, we are taken seriously by the government. And when uh, the population doesn't like a decision taken by the Bundesrat, uh, you challenge it. And there have been many decisions that have been overthrown by popular vote. Like in the United States, I would like to know if you were to have a referendum in the United States on this situation on Ukraine, uh, how about asking the American people, do you agree spending 500 billion or whatever uh, in the Ukraine, do you agree in uh, sending uh, oil to the fire? Do you agree in sending uh, lethal weapons uh, to the Ukraine? Would it not be more important uh, to ask the American people, what is it that you want us to do? Uh, you could ask the American people, do you think it was appropriate for NATO to expand eastwards when Gorbachev makes this unilateral uh, 
offer to the West. I mean, Gorbachev wanted glasnost and perestroika in Russia, and he wanted multilateralism, and he wanted to be America's friend. So he withdraws from Central and Eastern Europe, something that NATO wanted for decades. So NATO is getting this gift. But of course, James Baker, our Secretary of State, tells him NATO is not going to expand one inch eastwards. Don't worry. And this is, of course, confirmed by declassified documents. There was a whole batch of documents declassified 2017 that confirmed that. And you can also even see it in, in YouTube. You can hear uh, statements by, uh, say, the German foreign minister, uh, Hans Dietrich Genscher, saying exactly that. Uh, so it is adding insult to injury when Blinken says that there was never such an agreement. Of course, the agreement was not written in stone. I mean, it was not chiseled in stone. Uh, the agreement was based on good faith, on trust. It was what you call a gentleman's agreement. But when a foreign minister makes a statement like NATO will not expand one inch eastwards, that actually in international law is binding. You don't need a treaty. It is actually binding. But the United States breaks treaties that it has ratified right and left. So obviously the United States has no difficulty, no hesitation uh, to break its word, except that they don't seem to understand that in realpolitik, if you lose your credibility, that's serious. If you break your word vis-a-vis -vis another world power, like China or like uh, Russia, both of them on top of it, nuclear powers, that has consequences. And we think that we can just turn the page. Okay, we fooled you, you know, we, 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 we took advantage of you and you should now accept the fact that we took advantage of you and, you know, forget the past and just look to the future. Well, that fails to understand human nature that fails to understand the psychology of the average Russian or of the average Chinese. I mean, there is a festering wound. We have lied. We have broken a word. And we now try to renege on that. We try to deny, no, that didn't happen, but it did. And so what kind of negotiations can you have when Anthony Blinken brazenly lies to you? I mean, uh, Lavrov is a very patient man. And, you know, he listens and uh, he realizes this man is caught in his own web. He is completely incapable of jumping over his own shadow. He is completely incapable of thinking outside the box. He's so much into... America's propaganda that he actually believes it. Yeah, I, I don't a, a lot of people in the U.S. refer to it as, uh, you know, the, the sort of D.C., uh, the, the Beltway foreign policy blob. It's like there's this, this ideology about 
international relations that consumes everyone that goes to DC. And it, it becomes this consensus that if you question it, you're immediately uh, just pilloried for it. Well, again, when I was an independent expert of the United Nations, uh, when I did my 14 reports and uh, more than a hundred press releases and media statements and in info notes, et cetera, that I issued in the years 2012 to 2018, you can imagine how many insults, defamation, death threats I got. The whole idea is how dare you? I was called unpatriotic. I was called a traitor. And I say, wait a minute, what is a traitor? And what is a patriot? A patriot is someone who loves his country and who wants his country to be correct, to obey the values uh, that we ostensibly are committed to. To live up to its ideals. Yes. Uh, there is this uh, ridiculous knee-jerk reaction of many Americans, my country, right or wrong. And I say that's an invitation for totalitarianism. That is the equivalent of what Nazi Germany had with Führerbefehl, wir folgen. Führer, give us your orders and we will follow. We will uh, carry them out. This is an invitation for disaster. I want my country to be right. And if my country is not right, I will do everything in my power to correct the situation, to approach whoever has to be approached, to first as a whistleblower, to signal the problem, and as a pragmatic person to provide a solution. But they don't want it. The problem is that the military industrial financial complex rules the country. And already in his farewell speech to the nation, our president Dwight D. Eisenhower on the 17th of January, 1961, warned the American people about the military industrial complex. As a matter of fact, it was Eisenhower who coined the term that we use today as the gravest danger to the American democracy. He was genuinely worried that the military industrial complex would rule Washington. And, and so, we, I was gonna say, we see it all the time now. I mean, most of uh, American citizens uh, we're against this arms deal with Saudi Arabia. And yet, you know, it passed Congress even Come after on. the attempts to block it uh, because, you know, there's so many lobbies that are invested in all of this. That's right. That's what I always say. Uh, whatever I do in the United States, I am effectively disenfranchised because no Republican or Democratic senator or congressman or congresswoman is going to do what I and the other members of the electorate want. 
They will do what the military industrial complex orders and what the lobbies order. I mean, we are numbers. We're supposed to put a little X in our uh, voting papers and that's it. I mean, we, we don't have any genuine influence on policy. That's why I like the system here in Switzerland where I live, uh, that we have policy choices. That is government proposes a piece of legislation and then goes to the people says, do you want it, yes or no? And in the case of uh, Iraq, for instance, if the American public had been properly informed, which it was not, I mean, the American public suffered a campaign of disinformation, a campaign of, uh, shall we say, uh, Islamophobia uh, by uh, uh, the New York Times, Washington Post, etc., against uh, Saddam Hussein, against uh, Iraq, etc., etc. But assuming, even notwithstanding, all of the propaganda, all of the indoctrination, if the American public had been asked by George W. Bush, should we bomb the hell out of Baghdad? I am persuaded that 60% of the population would have said no. If today Biden were to ask the public in a referendum, uh, should we go into Ukraine? Should NATO expand into Ukraine? Uh, should we risk a nuclear war with Russia over Ukraine? I think you would have 80% of the American people saying no. But nobody gets a chance to vote on, on these crucial issues. Nobody is asked, uh, for instance, uh, do you want the United States uh, to maintain uh, tax havens, uh, to support tax havens with legislation, to support the secrecy of these uh, uh, tax havens? Uh, American people will vote against. But these issues, whether they are issues of peace and war or peace, uh, issues of um, finances and economy, are never given to the public. Those are decided by the pundits. And then uh, it's a very, shall we say, incestuous uh, system because there's so much money in Washington. Of course, we have $23 trillion of uh, national debt uh, and growing, but uh, still we spend more than we have. What happens in Washington is that they want to make an argument for something uh, particularly outrageous, uh, like uh, uh, attacking Putin or attacking uh, uh, Xi Jinping or boycotting the, uh, uh, the uh, Olympics or whatever. Uh, we, we saw that they, recently, right, with, um, you know, I, I, President Biden said at, at one of the White House pressers that, you know, uh, they're, they're not going, we're not going to uh, attack 
Russia over a minor incursion in the Ukraine. And immediately, uh, media from the left and the right just started descending upon Biden and attacking him, saying, no, we have to uh, take this strong stance against Russia in ways that could be really honestly dangerous. I mean, uh, banging the word drum has consequences. I mean, we are lucky that uh, Russia does not have a lunatic, does not have a megalomaniac as president, has someone who is, can we say, a classical realpolitiker. He's a realist. He knows what's possible and what's not possible. He knows that a world war, a uh, nuclear war, would be apocalypse for everybody. He doesn't want apocalypse for his country. He's a patriot. He loves Russia. So he's not going to provoke World War III. But we, in a way, in our megalomania, in our hubris, in our amazing self-righteousness, we could cause uh, a nuclear confrontation because we don't know what we're doing. We have a bunch of ideologues, not Realpolitica, a bunch of ideologues in, uh, in Washington who are really dangerous people. And now, a word from one of our sponsors. I wrote The Big Balloon, a love story, a memoir collage during quarantine. My legs swelled up at the computer. I took pictures of objects in my house. Each image inspired a wormhole of chain-linked recall. It's funny, disturbing, and scary honest. The chapters are just rooms in my house. Ryan Walsh, author of Astral Reeks, A Secret History of 1968, said this. Berlin populates his writing with memories that will break your heart and wisdom tossed off as one-liners. Walk through his house, flip on the lights room by room, see what he has left there for you and all of us. All of my bands, Orchestra Luna through the Nickel and Dime Band, find a place here. But there's a deeper cut into my non-musical queer life and those I've loved. Friends, family, portraits, and weird observations. Part Andy Rooney, part David Sedaris, part Proust, a stretch. You can read about it on my website, berlinrick.com. You can buy this beast of a book on Amazon, Bookshop, Barnes, and Noble. Thank you. It's interesting because I, I know, and I wanted to talk with you about this uh, you mentioned uh, having had the chance to interview the great diplomat, uh, George F. Kennan. And I mean, Kennan is known for being the father of containment uh, during the Cold War, uh, but he's also someone that uh, understood uh, the problems with NATO expansion after the Cold War. No, 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 he didn't know. He condemned it. Right. He condemned it. Yeah. I mean, he yeah. specifically in an article he published uh, in the New York Times in the year 1997, as you probably know, uh, George F. Kennan got to be 101 years old, and he died uh, in 2005. So in 1997, so uh, eight years before he died, he published this major article in the New York Times in which he condemned uh, NATO expansion uh, in the East and said, what a betrayal uh, of trust. And what a betrayal of the world, because we had a unique opportunity in 1989, 1991, 
uh, to have world peace, to have disarmament, that would then allow de development, that would allow then actually strengthening uh, all uh, democratic countries. And instead of uh, dismantling NATO, or instead uh, of uh, inviting Russia as a member of NATO, why not? I mean, the Warsaw Pact disappears. Would it not be much better to have invited Russia in 1991 to join NATO as a world peacekeeping force? that uh, we would be there exclusively for defense, not against the UN Charter and not against the United Nations, but in tandem with, together with the United Nations. But the amazing thing and the amazing stupidity is that uh, we figured we cheat the Russians they will have to accept it. And uh, sooner or later, uh, they will be, you know, basically our vassals. That's uh, what uh, at that time, uh, the pundits uh, of the uh, uh, program for a new American uh, century. Right, the, uh, the project for a new American century, yeah. Uh, whether it be Richard Pearl or uh, Wolfowitz uh, or uh, Dick Cheney, uh, the whole crowd, Condoleezza Rice. I mean, it's a disgrace. I mean, how these people who are educated could not see that cheating in international law has consequences and that you cannot cheat a major power. If you cheat Russia and if you cheat China, there's going to be a price to pay and it would be a lot better for everybody uh, to have a modus vivendi. Okay, we don't have to love Russians. We don't have to love Chinese, but we don't have to be beating the drums of war all the time. We don't have to be insulting them all the time. And what's you know so- what I Yeah. I was gonna say what's so fascinating is that you know, I, I feel like we don't have those voices uh, of skepticism or dissent uh, like Kennan saying, hey, you know, this this NATO stuff is going too far. Now we sort of have uh, just these Evelyn Farkas characters and these uh, neocons running around uh, dictating everything. Well, it, it is true. I mean, it is a breakdown in the, shall we say, the intellectual landscape of the United States. Uh, there are a few intellectuals. Of course, everybody knows uh, Noam Chomsky. He has been writing uh, extremely good analysis of uh, the world situation for the past 60 years. And you know, I, I've met uh, Noam when I was a law student at Harvard Law School back in 1968-69. He was always one of my heroes. I always thought, you know, here's a man who is honest, intellectually honest, and who takes risks 
by saying what is unpopular because he is convinced that his function uh, is that of being a whistleblower. His function is one uh, to clarify why our policies are incorrect. Now, back in 2013, I was giving a lecture at Harvard Law School. And no sooner did I finish my lecture that I jumped on a cab and I went over to MIT to see Noam. And I remember asking Noam, Noam, how can you stand it? You have been writing uh, the best uh, analysis of the geopolitical situation, not only in the United States, but in the world for the last 60 years. How can you stand it that nothing changes, even that things are getting even worse? And then he scowls at me, he looks at me, and he says, Zayas, <laughs> we do what we can and what we must. In other words, uh, even if you don't succeed, a person of conscience is going to say what has to be said, whether people are listening or not listening. You just simply have to do it. It is there in record. And let's face it, Noam Chomsky inspired me. Noam Chomsky has inspired tens of thousands of people, if not millions. Uh, but uh, it can be safely ignored. That is what differentiates the United States from uh, many other totalitarian countries. The power of Big Brother in the United States is so entrenched, it's so complete that they can afford having a Noam Chomsky say whatever he wants to say because government knows that nothing's going to change. Some people are going to applaud Chomsky, think he is uh, a clever man, uh, but nothing's going to change. The moment that Noam Chomsky's writings uh, could conceivably lead to a change uh, in the mainstream media, lead to a change uh, in the way politicians um, argue their cases. Uh, I think he would be declared a traitor. He would be tried for sedition or something, and he would be put away. But the United States is so entrenched in its own totalitarianism that uh, is not necessary. And someone like Noam or someone like Richard Falk or someone like uh, John Mearsheimer can afford anything they want. It's like the uh, king's fool or the king's buffoon. The king's buffoon could say anything and get away with it because people laugh. They said, this man has no power. He is, you know, cracking a joke. No one is going to take it seriously. 
And of course, the king's buffoon is saying the truth. The king's buffoon uh, is saying what nobody else is allowed to say, but uh, nothing will change. So that is tolerated. And um, well, so said, especially gotten- because ultimately, you know, what we're expected to do in America is, well, you vote every four years and that's about it. We don't have, as you've pointed out, referendums and more direct involvement in the democratic process. Um, And that's led to this situation where, you know, it seems like oligarchs and lobbies uh, have more control over the destiny of our country than the citizens do. Oh, of course, that's clear. And that's been the case now for quite a while. Uh, But what bothers me is that the average American is convinced that we have the best democracy in the world. The average American uh, thinks that our elections mean something. And uh, our elections would mean something if we had a choice. If indeed uh, you had a choice between one candidate who is uh, for mainstream, for, for Main Street, and one candidate who is for Wall Street, one candidate who is uh, for the Palestinians and one candidate who is for Israel, one candidate who is uh, uh, for peace and one candidate who is for the military industrial complex. But no matter whom you elect, you're gonna get convergence between the two parties. And it's not only uh, the president that goes for the cabinet, that goes uh, for senators, that goes for congressmen and congresswomen, uh, so that uh, we are a farce of a democracy. We are not a democracy. And uh, uh, as I said, Switzerland is a semi-direct democracy. And as I say, I prefer the system here in Switzerland and the system in the United States. And uh, the uh, mainstream media in uh, Switzerland is not as completely sold out as uh, the mainstream media uh, in the uh, United States. I do not often agree with the Neue Zürcher Zeitung, which is supposed to be our most important newspaper, the so-called quality press. And I, I, I did my doctorate in German. So, I mean, I obviously I read the Neue Zürcher Zeitung in, in German as I read the Frankfurt Allgemeine Zeitung in, in, uh, in Germany in German. Uh, in any event, uh, the Neue Zürcher Zeitung is very neoliberal, is very capitalistic and it's uh, uh, essentially pro-NATO, but not in such a primitive way as we get it from the New York Times and the Washington Post. There's always, shall we say, a little room where you can say mm, they're taking a little distance uh, from the uh, American uh, narrative. So I, I wanted to ask, not, not to interrupt you when you're on a roll, but since we've talked about international law a bit here and a, a lack of respect, Uh, at times from Western countries towards international law. I've had people say to me, 
well, what does international law even mean? How can international law even be enforced? What's the what's the point? I've, I've seen people become very nihilistic about mm-hmm. the possibility of international law. So what I want to ask you is, in addition to the need to revive uh, democratic processes, how can we revive faith in international law? Well, a lot of international law works and works very well. Uh when you send uh, a message, uh, the agreements of the uh, uh, telecommunications, international telecommunications um, uh, organization, guarantee that that functions. And since it usually functions perfectly well, you don't hear about it. Same thing goes. Uh, for the Universal Postal Union, all of this is international law. These are international agreements. They function. Take uh, the uh, International Civil Associ- uh, Aviation Organization, ICAO, in Montreal. Uh, they don't even have hard law. They don't issue uh, binding obligations. But Lo and behold, because it's in everyone's interest, uh, the regulations issued by the uh, International Civil Aviation Organization are observed. Everybody observes it because it's in everybody's interest. It's only, shall we say, in that 3% of uh, activities that are of a geopolitical nature, uh, matters uh, impacting borders, impacting territorial integrity, impacting the self-determination of peoples, uh, that international law uh, is being violated right and left, and mostly by the Western countries. That is what uh, people don't seem to understand. Our mainstream media gives us the impression that we are the beacon of light. We are the leaders in human rights. We are the leaders in democracy. We're the leaders in international law. Quite the contrary. That is simply a farce. It's not true. Uh, The number of uh, major uh, violations of international law by the West uh, certainly exceed those uh, uh, of of Russia, for instance. And um, One of the things that irritates me most uh, is the double standards, the selectivity, uh, the idea that international law can be applied a la carte. I mean, you cannot say A today and B tomorrow. I mean, talk about territorial integrity. Who was it who destroyed the principle of the territorial integrity? more than anybody else, NATO, the United States. When the territorial integrity of the Soviet Union uh, was at stake, we were the first to support the disintegration of um, the Soviet Union and uh, the emergence of 15 new states Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, um, uh, Ukraine, of course, and Kazakhstan, and so on and so forth. Uh, But the most emblematic example was Yugoslavia. 
because uh, in Yugoslavia, I mean, there's a procedure uh, for the uh, constitutive states uh, of Yugoslavia to leave if they wanted to leave. Uh, but this was done by force. This was done unilaterally. And it was immediately approved by the European states, notably by Germany. No, no sooner did Croatia said that uh, it was independent uh, from Yugoslavia that um, uh, within a week, Germany had uh, recognized Croatia as an independent state. And then when uh, Milosevic did not accept the ultimatums given to him by NATO, uh, they bombed the hell out of him. And uh, they killed a lot of people in, uh, in uh, Belgrade. They even attacked uh, the Chinese embassy for which the United States ended up paying a substantial amount uh, of compensation to the Chinese. Uh, but what was particularly interesting uh, is in the way the narrative was falsified by the mainstream media. Because I was at the, at the United Nations in a very senior position at the time, and I got reports. And for instance, uh, take the war uh, between uh, the Serbs and the Albanian Kosovars. Now that had been going on for over 10 years. Of course, it was massive stupidity on the part of uh, Milosevic to uh, cancel that section of the constitution of Yugoslavia that gave uh, Kosovo a level of autonomy. That was in uh, 1989. So that gave rise to the Kosovo Liberation Army, and which was a terrorist organization. You wouldn't believe the number of terrorist acts committed by the Kosovo Liberation Army, the crimes that they committed against poor Serbian peasants, just women and children, etc. the terroristic attacks that were committed uh, against the Serbs. Then of course, hard hand, uh, hard fist from uh, Milosevic, he tries to quell the insurrection by force. But in a period of 10 years, there had been, you know, an estimate of two, 3,000 deaths divided half-half between the Serbs and the Kosovars. So it's not like you had a case of genocide, a case of uh, crimes against humanity. Uh, I mean, you have two, 3,000 deaths in, a, in an afternoon in the Democratic Republic of the Congo or in the Central African Republic or in Mali or God knows. I mean, but this was Europe. And the United States had a great interest uh, in Kosovo because they wanted to put there their biggest military base, Bonsteel. And Milosevic was not giving it. So the idea is we're going to just, just tear Yugo, uh, Yugoslavia apart. We're going to take uh, Kosovo and make it into an independent state. So here, principle of the territorial integrity of Serbia with, shall we say, a 
an emotional link, a historical link uh, of hundreds of years with Kosovo. You have to consider that the most holy shrines of the Serbs are actually in Kosovo. Uh, and uh, the most holy uh, monasteries and convents, etc., are in Kosovo. So the Serbs were not about uh, to let uh, uh, Kosovo go. But the United States still wanted to discipline this man who was not dancing to the tune that he was given. I mean, Milosevic, uh, I think he was, uh, how we say, not a real politico. I think he was himself an ideologue. I think uh, he was himself responsible for the demise uh, of uh, Yugoslavia and Serbia because he was, shall we say, an intransigent or politician. Uh, but he finally accepted the demands of the West and was ready and said so publicly to grant uh, Kosovo the autonomy that it had before 1989. So go back to the status quo ante. Uh, and when it came to this disgraceful uh, meeting uh, at Rambouillet in France, uh, there he agreed to give them their uh, autonomy. But there were two annexes to the Rambouillet uh, paper. Uh, Serbia was obliged essentially to give up its sovereignty and pass it on to NATO. Uh, Serbia had to allow uh, NATO to travel around with NATO forces, with its trucks and tanks, etc. not only in Kosovo, throughout all of the territory of Serbia, which means give up Serbia's sovereignty and become an occupied state. And obviously on that point, uh, Milosevic said no, no. But the uh, mainstream media didn't tell you that story. Uh, the mainstream media just told you the story. He's massacring the poor Albanians of Kosovo. He is doing ethnic cleansing in Kosovo, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Here, the game of anachronism. Yes, there was ethnic cleansing in Kosovo, but you know when? After NATO started its massive bombardment uh, of uh, Serbia and Kosovo. And you, it, it's, it, it's not cause and effect, it's the other way around. I mean, NATO attacked and then the uh, Kosovo Liberation Army and the Kosovars being perceived as being disloyal, as being uh, allied to NATO and not to Serbia, were then expelled. But uh, what Nobody talks about also is the tremendous number of Kosovars killed by NATO because 
since NATO likes to bomb the hell out of people, uh, they bomb the hell out of uh, allies and non-allies, you know? So um, if you're there at the wrong time, at the wrong place, you got killed. I was going to say it kind of puts uh, a different spin on the old line, you know, uh, people say, oh, well, NATO is a defensive organization, but I think you would take issue with that. Uh, it has nothing, nothing with defense. And uh, NATO, as I said, should have been dismantled when the Warsaw Pact was dismantled. I mean, world security uh, is in the hands uh, of the Security Council and in part in the hands also of the General Assembly. So, um, there's no room for uh, a military force like NATO, uh, which is going to be used for regime change purposes, which is going to be used uh, to interfere in the internal affairs of states, which is going to be used for threatening with the use of uh, force. As you know, uh, Article 2, Paragraph 4 of the UN Charter prohibits not only the use of force, but also the threat of the use of force. And NATO engages in this kind of saber rattling on a daily basis. And if you read the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, Article 20, very specific. States are obliged to have legislation prohibiting propaganda for war. So engaging in saber rattling engaging in a propaganda campaign against Russia, for instance, because of uh, uh, the Donbass, because of Lugansk and, uh, uh, and uh, Donetsk. Uh, that violates Article 20 of the Covenant uh, on Civil and Political Rights. And one thing that uh, I have written about, but no journalist has cared to, to uh, use this particular piece of information. Back in 1994, in March for the parliamentary elections and in June for the presidential elections in Ukraine, I was uh, the representative of the secretary general for monitoring these elections. And uh, I crisscrossed the country and it was quite clear to me uh, that the Russian Ukrainians were oriented toward Moscow and not toward Kiev. On the other hand, these are men and women, have their families, they've been living there for generations. Because when everything was a Soviet Union, it didn't make any difference whether you were living in Ukraine or in Russia, it was all the same. The problem starts in 1991 when you get split. But you know, for centuries, Ukraine was part of Russia. So uh, these Russian Germans were not, uh, I mean, sorry, Russian Ukrainians were not about uh, to emigrate. They stayed there. They were loyal to the government in Kiev until the National Endowment uh, for Democracy and our friend Victoria Nuland and the European Union and the NGOs, which are nothing but the Trojan horse uh, of the deep state, uh, actually destabilized uh, Ukraine 
artificially created uh, this uh, Maidan insurrection. And uh, Yanukovych, who loved his people, did not want to throw the army against them. He negotiated with the French, with the Poles, with the uh, Germans, with Maidan, and they signed an agreement on the 21st of February, um, 2014, whereby he was going to call for uh, early elections so as to have a, a soft transition. What happened? Maidan, that is, the insurgents, the uh, olpistas, that you would say in Spanish, uh, actually broke the agreement and, uh, well, invaded the presidential palace. It was lucky, Yanukovych, that he was able to flee with his life. And uh, here you have a classical coup d'etat, a putsch. And what do you think happens? Those countries like Poland and Germany and France that had committed themselves to this agreement, instead of condemning Maidan for breaching the agreement, there again, a major breach of trust uh, and a major lack of respect vis-a-vis -vis those European countries that had put their names down as uh, endorsing this, um, uh, this uh, agreement, they immediately flip-flopped and immediately supported the illegitimate uh, putsch administration. And that is what triggers the situation we see today. You have an illegal act, you have a color revolution, financed, inspired, by the West, you have interference in the internal affairs of a state because Yanukovych, who had been democratically elected, preferred to maintain his relationship with uh, Russia and not to throw that overboard because in his judgment, and I think it was correct, uh, it was more advantageous to Ukraine to remain in this uh, economic uh, trade and economic relationship with Russia than entertain these other uh, relationships with uh, the European Union that would entail a lot of privatization and would entail uh, really interference uh, in the internal affairs uh, of the Ukraine where, shall we say, social justice most likely uh, would have suffered uh, significantly. So, uh, he was uh, in favor of keeping uh, uh, the Ukrainian friendship uh, with Russia. Whereas uh, those who overthrew his government uh, wanted simply to cut off uh, Russia and just ally themselves to the West. The question is whether to what extent that uh, reaches the level of treason. Uh, as the case may be, uh, the Russians uh, of the Lugansk and Slavyansk and, uh, uh, and Donetsk uh, areas uh, declare themselves uh, unilaterally independent, uh, same as the Crimeans. And 
I remember visiting the then president of the Autonomous Republic of uh, Crimea. That was in March uh, 1994. And yeah, go there just simply to show my credentials and say, I'm here representing the United Nations. I'm going to uh, monitor the elections in Simferopol and Yalta, et cetera. And you know what the guy tells me? Gospodin desires. Avisnayetsya. Miruski. Do you realize, Mr. Desires, that we are Russians, not Ukrainians? And of course, that for me was totally irrelevant. I couldn't care less. I was there just to observe elections, Ukrainian elections. I mean, his particular bickering with Kiev that he did not identify himself with uh, Kiev totally irrelevant to me. But 20 years later, 2014, I understood it perfectly. And if there had been a referendum, when the Ukraine separates from the Soviet Union, there should have been a referendum at that moment because Crimea had never any links, historical or ethnic, or religious or emotional with the Ukraine. It was only an administrative act when in the mid 1950s, Khrushchev, who was a Ukrainian, had the idea uh, of administratively transferring Russian Crimea to the Ukraine without consulting the population, without a plebiscite or anything, just transferred it for administrative reasons, it made sense. Uh, nobody objected at the time because there's no difference. They were all in the Soviet Union. The problem arose in 1991. There the United Nations failed the Crimeans and failed the Ukrainians and failed the Russians. The United Nations should have offered its good offices to organize referenda where there are people who are who actually don't belong, you should at least ask them, do you want to be part of Ukraine? Do you want to be part of Russia? That was not done. Had it been done when I was there in 1994, I'm absolutely convinced that the vote would have been a good 80% for Russia. Uh, but of course, that was not on the table. Nobody was talking about uh, secession in 1994, because as I said, Ukrainians and Russians are usually rather peaceful people. If you have your wife and your children and your grandchildren in Crimea, uh, you're not gonna start a war to separate from, uh, from Kiev. Why does that happen in 2014? Because they saw that there was a takeover. The European Union was actually aggressing Ukraine and was overthrowing its government. So the Crimean said, forget it, but not with us. We're not playing the game. And, uh, and then they went to what I call a rule of law, step-by-step -step process. 
what important. They don't do as in Kosovo that the parliament quickly declares itself uh, unilaterally independent. No, 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 no. First of all, they, not Russia, the Crimeans, the Crimean government organizes a referendum. Their referendum is massively for uh, independence or separation from uh, Ukraine. And then the next step is a declaration of independence by the parliament. So you have first referendum, then a declaration of independence by the parliament. Then they asked officially the Russian government whether the Russian government would accede to the reincorporation of the old oblast of uh, Crimea back into the mother country. That again was not automatic, but had to be examined by the Duma, had to be examined by the uh, Russian parliament. And even after the Russian parliament agreed with it, it went to the constitutional court. Is it allowed under the Russian constitution to reabsorb this territory? After the declaration of independence by the parliament comes a, an official request, rule of law. I mean, you don't have an annexation here. You, you have a country declaring itself uh, or rather people declaring itself independent and then seeking to be reattached to the mother country where they used to be part of. But that again, Russia could have said, no, it's a big headache. Don't want it. It's like when, um, uh, when the Soviet Union was about to collapse and Gorbachev actually offers the Germans Gorbachev offered uh, Chancellor Helmut Kohl and uh, the German foreign minister Hans Dietrich Genschau. Uh, he offered them to return the province, the northern part of uh, what used to be East Prussia. Now, East Prussia has been for 700 years uh, a part of the of Prussia, of uh, the, what subsequently was uh, the German empire under Bismarck. But in any event, since the 12th, 13th century it was German. So Gorbachev offers the Germans, you wanna take it back? And the Germans said, no. The headache is too great. The fears in the world that Germany wants to establish a fourth Reich, too great. We can't take the flak, so keep it. You have it, you keep it. So the same thing could have happened with Crimea. Putin could have said, no, 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 don't give me that headache. 
No, no, no. If I take Crimea in, I'm going to have sanctions. I'm going to have all sorts of headaches. No way. He didn't pronounce himself. He let first the Duma, the parliament, pronounce itself. Then he let the constitutional court approve it. And only then did Putin sign. And only then did uh, Crimea become part of, um, of uh, Russia. But what really bothers me is the betrayal of international law by so many international law professors. There are a handful who have written correctly on Crimea, but they're using the propagandistic word annexation. An annexation occurs when country A invades a portion of country B, militarily occupies it against the will of the people and then incorporates it into its territory. Here, the initiative is not in Moscow. The initiative, I assure you, is in Simferopol. The initiative is purely Crimean. The Crimean people, who have a right of self-determination like everybody else, say, look, you know, we've been betrayed. Our government has been overthrown. We don't belong to this Ukraine. And we were placed in Ukraine without being asked. But we want to be back to Russia, where we used to be. Entirely legitimate. If you have any doubts as to the annexation question, why don't you ask the Crimean people? Send your journalists to Crimea. Send your uh, monitors to Crimea. Hold another referendum. Do you want to go back to Ukraine? I mean, if that question were placed to the Ukrainian people today, no, I'm not the Ukraine, to the Crimean people, I don't think they'll get more than 10%. I mean, obviously, the Crimean Tatars uh they suffered a lot under Stalin. But Stalin committed crimes against humanity against the Crimean Tatars. They see, of course, Putin as uh, shall we say, a reincarnation of Stalin. And uh, so the Tatars do not like uh Russia. They do not like Putin. So uh the eight percent or so of uh, the Tatars certainly would vote uh, to go to Ukraine. They would not vote uh, uh, to stay in Russia. But again, nobody even bothers. The same thing with regard to uh, uh, Donetsk and uh, Lugansk. What's all this sound? What is this uh, uh, war drums going on? Why doesn't anybody say, okay, why don't we send a United Nations team to Donetsk and Lugansk and try to find out what the people want? Do they want to be independent? Do they want to be part of Ukraine? 
or would they want to be part of Russia? Find out. I mean, that is democratic. There's nothing more democratic than a referendum. And you take self-determination. What is self-determination? It's the concrete exercise of democracy. What the people want. They determine their own futures. But we don't want that. We don't want to ask the Crimeans whether they want to be in Russia or in Ukraine. We want to impose upon them that they be part of Ukraine and not part of Russia. We don't want uh, to listen to the people of Donbass, whether they want to be independent or they want to be uh, Russia. We want to oblige them to be part of, um, uh, of uh, Ukraine. The same stupidity of the Camp David Accords of 1995. Look at the mess that Europe and the United States has done in the former Yugoslavia by forcing this completely artificial creation called Bosnia and Herzegovina, three ethnic groups that mutually hate each other. The Bosnian uh, Muslims hate the Croats, who in turn hate the Serbs, and they all hate each other. And you want to keep this totally unviable people together instead of saying, how about applying the principle of self-determination and let the Croats go to Croatia, let the uh, Bosnian uh, Muslims go to Albania and let the, uh, the, the Serbs go to Serbia. But no, 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 geopolitics. It is not in the interest of the European Union. It's not in the interest of NATO. They want to keep this mess in there to destabilize it. I mean, it's so... Machiavellian, uh, it, it really, it boggles the mind. So wrapping up here, what it sounds to me like you're saying is that we need a bit more direct democracy. We need a bit more uh, things like referendums uh, to solve a lot of these issues. And I guess uh, on a final end note, because I know we've been going along here, uh, what do you think are some of the key steps that could be taken to bring about as you put it, a more just world order? Well, uh, I formulate 25 principles of international order, which of course, I'm not rediscovering the Mediterranean and I'm not reinventing the wheel. My 25 principles of international order are solidly based in the United Nations Charter, in General Assembly Resolutions uh, 2625, that is the Friendly Relations Resolution, 3314, 3911, 60 Bar 1, and many others. Uh, it is a pragmatic mode d'emploi, how to get there. But the first thing is our common commitment to peace, to work for peace, to stop the saber rattling to stop uh, warmongering. Another thing is uh, the absolute necessity uh, to stop interfering in the internal affairs of other states. Uh, NATO has done nothing but every color revolution is not homegrown. The color revolutions were financed by the West in order to shall we say, impose our 
social economic system on these people. And then we found, as people usually find them, you find uh, quislings, you find traitors, you find puppets uh, that will do your bidding. And uh, then, of course, we praise them as representatives of their countries. They're not. And uh, I mean, I, I think of this puppet called uh, Saakashvili. I mean, how stupid can you be? You have a peace situation based on an agreement with Russian peacekeepers in Southern Ossetia and in Abkhazia. And in August of 2008, because uh, tons of CIA advisors had been persuading Takashvili that he could get away with it, he just slashes, <laughs> lashes out at uh, uh, Southern Ossetia he uh, invades Southern Ossetia, he bombards Southern Ossetia, kills God knows how many civilians. Uh, and didn't it occur to him that uh, Putin could not simply let that happen? So Putin, in five days, mopped it up, but Putin was moderate. He had been aggressed, he didn't go to Tbilisi to kick Saakashvili in the ass, as he could have. He let him be. He just repelled the aggression of Georgia and then gave official recognition to Southern Ossetia and to Abkhazia, who are entitled to self-determination. Of course they are. There's no difference. I mean, when people start arguing that Kosovo is sui generis, everything is sui generis. Every single case of self-determination, whether it be Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Slovenia, Croatia, uh, uh, Macedonia, it's all sui generis. But the fact that NATO destroyed the principle of territorial integrity by attacked Serbia in 1999. By the way, an illegal war, because uh, the use of force without approval of the Security Council is illegal. And so this entailed the crime of aggression, this entailed war crimes, this entailed crimes against humanity, committed by NATO, by the way, NATO. So in any event, uh, the uh, destruction of uh, the principle of territorial integrity, which up to that moment was really sacrosanct. Huh? Nobody wanted to touch it. Uh, and then the judgment of the International Court of Justice in its advisory opinion uh, of 2010, it's an amazing advisory opinion, paragraph 80 of which says that territorial integrity in international law has only meaning in relations between states, but it cannot be used to frustrate the right of self-determination. That is, the right of self-determination of peoples takes precedence over the principle of territorial integrity. Apply that to Crimea, there you have it clearly. Crimea has the right of self-determination and it's more important 
than the territorial integrity of uh, Ukraine. Lugansk and Donetsk have the right of self-determination and takes precedence over the right of territorial integrity uh, of Ukraine. Now imagine the scenario in which NATO would start a war to try to uh, deny the self-determination of these people by force and incorporate them in, against their will into uh, Ukraine. It is absolutely insane. Of course, contrary to Articles 1 and 2 of the UN Charter, contrary to Article 39 of the UN Charter, contrary to customary international law. Uh, but how can this happen? Because we have a corporate media that is giving us false news and false law. Not only false news, it's false law. And people who are not lawyers don't realize that they're being lied to. It is serious because only the alternative media, gray zone, the intercept, Aaron Maté with um, pushback, Amy Goodman with Democracy Now!, A.B. Martin, so many others, Counterpunch, Consortium News. Uh, if you read these organs, you realize that a tremendous number of very intelligent people, professors and professionals uh, have entirely diametrically opposed views than those uh, of the New York Times and the Washington Post. But the masses of people who watch CNN or CNBC or uh, Fox News, etc., are being indoctrinated day by day by day. And you know, it is very difficult to escape it. I have close friends in Washington, very intelligent people, and they buy the propaganda. And I ask, but how is it possible? How can you possibly believe this crap? Well, it's taken me decades to separate myself uh, from the uh, propaganda, to be able to think outside the box. I think inside the box too, huh? but I can think outside. Uh, most of these people are totally incapable of putting themselves in the shoes of somebody else. They don't think that there's any other perspective other than ours. It, it's it's funny you say that because I was just talking to um, a, another scholar, um, Nikolai uh, Petro, who does work on, on Russia and the Ukraine. And uh, he has said, along with people like Katrina Vanden Heuvel at The Nation, that what we're really lacking in a lot of the discussions around Russia, the Ukraine, the US, NATO is strategic empathy. Uh, we don't look through the eyes of other countries. Um, in a way, we engage in what Hans Morgenthal, the great realist, uh, called strategic narcissism. Very good terms. I'm sure I want to use them both. Strategic 
empathy, strategic empathy. And then the inverse of that, the bad thing would be strategic narcissism, where we only think in terms of, well, how does this relate to the U.S.? Uh, We we don't think necessarily of how Russia thinks about it or how these other countries think about things. Well, the fact is that the United States is the most prominent proponent of what I would call imperial narcissism. Every action under the Monroe Doctrine, every action of manifest destiny, every mission, even the names of the missions, so many of the missions are aggressions, are called, uh, uh, shall we say, sustainable freedom or uh, it's Orwellian, it's completely newspeak. It is cognitive dissonance, what we're selling uh, to the world, but it is effective. Because as I said, friends of mine, and I'm saying people who are ethical, people who are decent, people who are logical, fall in for the propaganda. And I say, why don't you read this and that and that and that? Why don't you get hold of Stephen Kinzer's uh, book, Overthrow, or uh, William Bloom's book, uh, Destroying Hope, or Killing Hope, etc. Uh, I mean, you can learn to think independently, but most people, I hate to say it, are too lazy for that. I wanted to say real quick, I, I think that um, even the propagandists are propagandized. You know, I think there's a lot of really great journalists out there, even at, at, you know, these very mainstream publications like the New York Times that uh, end up believing in the sort of uh, propaganda of empire. They, they believe themselves. Well, let's put it this way. I am convinced that John Bolton sees himself as the good guy. I am convinced that Mike Pompeo sees himself as the good guy, that uh, Anthony Blinken sees himself as the good guy and Lavrov is, is the bad fellow. The fact is that we tend to believe our own propaganda. And this is nothing new, nothing new. Uh, Julius Caesar in his De Velo Civile, in his uh, Civil War, he writes very clearly, que volumus, what we want, we want to believe that, we believe it. And if you expand that, not only to the individual, but then to the world at large, there's another Roman saying, mundus vult decepti. The world wants to be lied to. They're happy to be lied to because the Lies kind of give them a certain continuity, a certain stability, and uh, they want to believe that they are the good guys. That is very comforting. They want to believe that their governments are good. That's also comforting. It is difficult and painful to realize that you have criminals in government. I mean, there was no, shall we say, violation of the Nuremberg principles violation of international law, there was no revolt against the international order as serious as the George W. Bush 
Tony Blair assault on uh, Iraq in 2003. I mean, it really boggles the imagination, the level of criminality uh, and the level of lying is deliberate. On the other hand, uh, the mainstream media doesn't call these people to account. The mainstream media allows you know, George W. Bush to appear here or there. And he is, of course, the ex-president and he, we owe him all this deference and all this respect. And uh, George W. Bush was bad. But what is actually the greatest success of the mainstream media is to make Barack Obama into a saint. He is our hero. He was the good man. He was the good president. On the other hand, he was also the king of drones. He was also the man who overthrew Gaddafi. And his then Secretary uh, of State Hillary Clinton came with a very unfunny statement uh, instead of Julius Caesar's Veni Vidi Vici, I came and so I won. She changed it to say, we came, we saw, he died. And you can hear it in YouTube. And then she laughs. She thought it was very funny. Look at where Libya is now. I mean, we've seen the reintroduction of the slave trade now in, in that part of Africa. It is our fault. It is the fault of the United States. It is the fault of NATO. It is the fault of this French president, uh, Sarkozy. It is shocking. I mean, it's so unethical, it's so immoral. But who is complicit? The mainstream media. Who has whitewashed it? Who has made it appear as the whole thing was uh, just responsibility to protect? It was a humanitarian intervention on behalf of the poor Libyan people suffering under Mohammed uh, Gaddafi. I mean, it's it, it's frightful. As I said, uh, Big Brother has won. Uh, if you read 1984 and you see where we are today, Big Brother has won because most Americans love Big Brother. And who is Big Brother? Barack Obama. Who is Big Brother? Joe Biden. These are our, shall we say, our heroes. These are the good people. And we allow ourselves to be deceived. And we allow ourselves to have crimes committed in our name crimes that Julian Assange uh, revealed back in 2010. And it's gonna be 12 years that the man is uh, suffering arbitrary detention and suffering an absolutely vicious uh, persecution. As my last uh, appeal to your listeners, this book, this is the original German version. My colleague, Professor Niels, Meltzer, a Swiss like me. Professor Niels Meltzer is the UN Rapporteur on Torture. 
he visited- could, could you name the book real quick uh just for the the audio version well, of this the, the book is coming out in verso new york in verso publishers new york on the i think on the 8th monday the 8th of february uh but the original because niels is a swiss german so the original version of the book is in german and i reviewed it also as the case may be when the book comes out all of your readers should go and get it also the name of the book is uh, the trial of uh, julian assange niels meltzer M-E-L-Z-E-R, and it is Verso Publishers in New York. And uh, it is breathtaking because Niels shows us the complete breakdown of the rule of law in the United States, United Kingdom, Sweden, and Ecuador. And it's not just blah, blah. He takes you by the hand and step by step by step by step shows you what your government has done in your name. It is absolutely, well, uh, you would want to scream when uh, you read that book and you would want to demand accountability uh, from Obama, don't forget. The persecution of uh, Julian Assange uh, started under Saint Barack Obama. And it was uh, really carried in the most vicious way by um, uh, Hillary Clinton, including through the um, uh, elections in 2016, etc. So it is important uh, that uh, your uh, viewers get the book. And as I said, I would appreciate it very much if your readers uh, would write uh, you or me directly you know, I, I have a blog, I have a website, you can leave a message in the blog and um, uh, send me information that would help me advance with the new manuscript that I have. I told you I've written a third of the book called uh, The Human Rights Industry, but I need uh, real concrete examples from real people who can't say, I know about double standards. I know about selectivity. I know about fake news and I know about fake law. So you can pass on my email, very simply, Zayas, like my name, Z-A-Y-A-S, Zayas at bluewin, B-L-U-E-W-I-N dot C-H. That is the Swiss server. So. Zayas at bluewind.ch. CH, of course, is Confederatio Helvetica. And uh, once again, uh, thank you for having me in the program. And um, if there are any questions, you have my email. Uh, you can uh, write me, you can communicate to me questions uh, from your viewers or any information given. And uh, I would be happy if some of your viewers would go to uh, their local bookstore and say Clarity Press, Atlanta, Georgia, September, 2021, building a just world order and uh, get the book, but don't get it through Amazon. I think Amazon is destroying the uh, uh, local bookstores and I very much support local bookstores 
and I would like to see people actually uh, give the local bookstores the business that they deserve. And on this happy note, I uh, leave you and I thank you again. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Professor Alfred Dizaeus. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. There's everything from a $1 tier to a $100 tier. And at the $10 tier and above, you get a producer's credit shout-out. So, producer's credit shout-outs to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warnerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Fabian, Elliot, Colin, Matthew Ho, and The Mirror Project. That's Mirrors for Earth's Energy Rebalancing, a project headed up by Dr. Ye Tao, who recently appeared on Parallax Views to discuss his and his colleagues' efforts to curb the effects of climate change through the innovative methods of the Mare Project. Please consider checking out their work at Mere Reflection, that's M-E-E-R Reflection.com. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, please consider joining those listeners in supporting me at the $10 tier or above at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with the way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit it. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff is a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not a traitor. I'm not a traitor. I'm not a